The Books Podcast, presented by Tim Haig. Hello, and welcome to this new episode of The Books Podcast. I'm Tim Haig, and it's been my pleasure to meet and talk to, uh, well, some wonderful authors for this series. We've had um, Joanne Harris, Ian Banks, uh, Francesca Stavrakopoulou, many, many others. So subscribe now on your favourite podcast player to hear them. And of course, as always, please tell your friends. For this episode, I'm joined by Sarah Ogilvie to talk about the dictionary people. It really is the Wikipedia of the 19th century, but we've never known who all those people were. He was really strict to his scientific principles, and he basically said that any word deserves to go in. and for joining us on the Books Podcast. Such a pleasure, Tim. Well, the dictionary in question is, of course, uh, the Oxford English Dictionary, the Ur Dictionary for many of us. Uh, mm. What's your connection with it, Sarah? Well, I used to be an editor on it. So I worked as, as an editor on, on the dictionary. I even wrote my doctorate on it. It's quite a passion of mine, yeah. So the book is about the people who, well, made it, the contributors, mm. uh, and not, not really so much about the editors, although... Obviously, we have to learn about those in just from mechanics of it. But it's more about the army of readers who sent in tons of slips with, with words and quotations for the editor, mainly James Murray, because he's, mm-hmm. he's the central figure, to, uh, to construct the dictionary out of. Um, who, who were they? Who, who well, were those readers? And how did they come to the project? It's a great question. So when the founders of the dictionary first proposed it in 1858, Because this was such a radical dictionary, this was the first English dictionary to describe every word and to describe it rather than be a prescriptive dictionary. So what they wanted to do is they they wanted to document every single word in the English language. And they realized that a small group of men in London or Oxford couldn't do that alone. So they decided to crowdsource it, which was quite a radical thing. So it's a Wikipedia, really. It really is the Wikipedia of the 19th century. But we've never known who all those people were. So what they did is they put out advertisements in newspapers and in journals and asked people around the world to read their local books, to write out quotations from, from those books on little pieces of paper, four by six slips of paper, and to send those slips to Oxford. They had no idea whether that would be a successful project or not, and it ended up being a massive success. So many people sent in slips that outside James Murray's house, which you must visit after after we speak, it's at 78 Banbury Road, so many people sent in slips that Royal Mail had to put a red pillar box outside his house, and it's still there today. And, of course, he had a, a, a sort of a, a shed. Well, it wasn't a shed. It was made of metal, wasn't it? That he originally had in Mill Hill, where mm-hmm. he, he lived when he got the job. And he had transported, what was it called? The Scriptorium. And he had it transported to Oxford and put in his garden there. Yeah. For, for all the work to be done with a, um, a handful of, uh, what, editors? Yes. Working in there with him. And it was his life's work. It was his life's work. He, he actually started writing the dictionary inside the house, but because he had 11 children, his long-suffering wife, Ada, said, James, you have to get out of the house and build that corrugated shed. And when they moved it here to Oxford, they, 
they partially dug it in into the ground. So it was really dank and cold during winter. And the editors, there was Murray and about four editors, they used to wrap their legs with newspaper to 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 keep warm. So all these people will we'll come back to how, how the mechanics of it worked. But um, the big thing is that you, you just fell in love with them. How did you yeah. find these these contributors and, and what, what brought you to the, to the project sure. of writing the book? Well, I have always wondered who they were and I've known that as they published the dictionary gradually, so they didn't wait until 1928 to publish the dictionary. The dictionary took 70 years to complete, but as they finished chunks of the alphabet, then they would publish those in little fascicles and they would document they Murray or whoever the editor was, would write a little preface in the front of each of those fascicles and sometimes thank people. So we knew that there were several hundred, but we didn't know beyond that. And then eight years ago, I was down in the basement of Oxford University Press, which is where the dictionary archive is stored, and I came across this dusty box. I took the lid off, and inside was this little black book tied with cream ribbon And when I opened it up, I immediately recognized the immaculate handwriting of James Murray, the longest serving editor. And I realized that this was his address book where he listed every person who sent in slips, their address, and then every book that they read, the number of slips per book that they sent in, and then the actual date that he received those slips. So it was just the address book alone was the work of an obsessive. And when, when I saw all of these names and from, they, they, they were from all different parts of the globe, I got curious and I just wanted to find out as much as I could about each of them. And so, yes, it turns out that there are 3,000 people. 3,000? 3, three, That's quite a lot. It's far more than we thought. There are far more women than we thought. There are more Americans. I was going to ask about that because... Uh, so some of these people did a huge number of slips, and, and, and they were very committed. Not all of the three thousand, but a lot of them were very committed. So having having leisure time to read must have been mm. a, a bit of a premium. Of course, women, because uh, educated women who weren't working in the mill mm-hmm. might well have a lot of time on their hands. Sure, um, I think you've got a lot of vicars as well. I think you said ten percent of vicars. Exactly. Again, well, they only work on Sundays. So. <laughs> they, they would they'd be educated but and they they'd had have time. time on their hands. Well, that that was one of the questions. I really wanted to try and find out about the social class of these people because I think in our minds we think of this as a very prestigious project, a project of the elites, definitely the scholarly elite. And what I found is the opposite really, that these weren't the scholarly elites, these weren't the scholars, they were more the amateurs. They were uh, people who were on the fringes. Many of them were autodidacts who left school early but were clearly very bright and they taught themselves. And I think that they were attracted to this project because it was attached to a prestigious university. And in a way, it gave them access to a world that was otherwise denied to them at the time. And it was a way of... Like, I mean, you, you, you made the point that quite a lot of these weren't just weren't just contributing to the dictionary. They were also contributing to studies on, on rainfall or, or, or ornithology or, or botany. They, they were sending in data. 
exactly. for all sorts of projects, as well as the Oxford English Dictionary. Yes, yeah, so there were other crowdsourced projects going going on, and some of these contributors to the dictionary were sort of serial crowdsourcees. So there was a there were I think there were about eight or nine of them who also collected rain as well as collecting words. So as you mentioned, the British Rainfall Organization was asking people to put. Uh, measurement gauges in their back gardens and collect the rainfall overnight and then every morning send them in what that reading was. And then I also had, I think there is um, one of the vicars from Norfolk also collected wildflowers for the Royal Botanical Society. So there were other crowdsourced projects going on, but, but certainly the OED seems to be the largest and therefore the most successful. You, you <laughs> inevitably, um, you, you, you tell us who the biggest contributors were, and some of some of them were doing a hundred thousand slips or a hundred and forty thousand. I mean, the, who was the uh, the most prolific contributor? So Thomas Austin, who lived in Hitchin, Hertfordshire, he sent in one hundred and sixty five thousand and sixty one. That's Strong. quite a lot. It's quite That's a, a lot, lot of reading and a lot of. Well, writing out. Yeah, and he did that just within a 10-year period, and he was so devoted. He actually, he's a bit of a sad story because, as I tell in the book, he became disillusioned and really wanted Murray to do two things, to pay him and then to let him join the team in the scriptorium, and Murray, unfortunately, was having none of that. Well, for one thing, he didn't have any money. We'll come back to Thomas Austin and this question, but uh, you raise a very interesting point here that the, the OED was not, I mean, it was a prestigious project, but it was badly underfunded. It wasn't resourced properly. It was underfunded. Poor old Murray never, was, was always short of money. Murray was the worst business person in negotiating a deal for himself. He basically was underpaid and agreed to pay everyone, like all of his assistants, out of his own wage and to buy all the books and all the paper and pay for the postage. So it was a it was a and terrible with eleven children. With I mean, eleven this, children. This, exactly. And so you can understand, I think, as you read the book, why he's very reluctant to pay any of these contributors. So they all did it for free except for Eleanor Marks and maybe say, one well, or two tell, others. Tell us about Eleanor Marks. Firstly, <laughs> he didn't want to because she wasn't very good. Yeah. And secondly, he found himself backed into having to pay Eleanor, who was Karl Marx's daughter, of course. Yes, yes. So so Karl Marx's daughter, Eleanor, was a friend with of uh, Frederick Furnival's, who was James Murray's predecessor, and arranged to do some reading for the dictionary and wanted to be paid which is fair enough, I guess, and, you know, great for Karl Marx's daughter to be uh, demanding that. So she goes into the British Museum, which is where the library, the British Library was then, and she basically sits down and copies out words from an existing glossary, sends them in, which, of course, uh, angers Murray because they are useless slips for Murray because you can't just take words from pre-existing dictionaries, and then she demands to be paid. So that was a complete uh, disaster for Murray, yeah. Well, you've mentioned Austin. He wasn't the only one who made huge contributions to the dictionary. How many of the volunteers effectively made it, as it were, a full-time job, even though it wasn't paid? But how many of them... Mm. Do you know, I think the top contributors did. So there are four who really stand out. So you've got Thomas Austin as number one. Mm. Then you have William Douglas, who sends in 150,000. 
Now, William Douglas on all the censuses in the late 19th century is listed as what they called back then a lunatic. And I, I can only... <laughs> I we'll can be coming only to chapter 12 shortly. Ellis ah, the lunatic. Okay, yes. <laughs> but yes. So that was tell, him. tell me about William uh, Douglas. So William Douglas actually I realized after a while that his postal address matched that of Frederick Furnival. So I thought what is this man doing living in Frederick Furnival's house? Turns out William Douglas wasn't his real name. He changed it to that and he was born William Furnival. So he is a cousin of Frederick Furnival's and is suffering from mental illness, spends time. He actually ends up dying in, in a psychiatric hospital, but he is prolific and clearly has rashes on different words. So he particularly loves the human body and diseases and reads, as I say in the book, book after book to do with human diseases and sends in words all to do with the human body and sends in 150,000. You raise an interesting question here because, yes, the readers had specialisations and enthusiasms, um, but that does mean that there could be uh, biases in what they were sending in. Uh, was yeah. there any direction in the reading? Did did um, did Murray make sure that um, mm. sheep farming and, you know, um, you know human anatomy and, oh, I don't know, astronomy, were all equally covered. So he did a balance of both. So he he said to, he first of all said to people, just read whatever you want, what whatever book you have to hand. But what if 20 people read Hamlet? Absolutely. But thankfully, because there were 3,000 people, you actually got a really great diverse spread. And then he he did also do targeted reading where he would send a particular book to someone who he knew was a really good reader and he'd ask them to read that specifically. So there was a balance. And that's such a good point because when I was working as an editor on the dictionary, we were revising many of the entries in the dictionary, which which hadn't been revised since Murray did them. And we were always trying to search for an earlier dating from the first date. So basically the OED is different from an everyday dictionary in the sense that it's an historical dictionary. And after the definition is this wonderful paragraph of quotations showing you the first time that that word was ever used and more or less giving you a biography of that word and tracing it right through until its current use. And we would, as editors, always try and fill in gaps or try and antedate the first dating. And it was remarkable that often those first editors had actually found the first date, even though now we've got huge databases of books and newspapers to help us find things, but they did a remarkable job. So do you have any idea what proportion of submissions made it into the dictionary? Because yes. if 20 people are doing Hamlet, then mm. Bodkin is going to be one, yeah, is going to be submitted 20 times. <laughs> so what do you know? Any, yes. What sort of proportion yes. made it in? We do know. So we know that basically half, so overall, um, they they didn't use half of what they received. So but that of course means that some readers who they who were particularly good at, at sending in really thoughtful slips, they might use all of that person's. And then some, as we know from the address book, 
were what he called hopeless contributors. So <laughs> Murray writes little notes beside the names of these people. And as I say in the book, there's a whole chapter actually on hopeless contributors. Oh, no wonder they buried the address book so that nobody <laughs> would ever find it. <laughs> exactly. So there are there are notes like, like no good or threw up, which I guess means Gave up. Gave up, yeah. And, um, yeah, so that's that's a funny part of the address books. But a very sweet part is that he also made notes. So if someone was married and the woman's name changed, he would say, oh, married, and he would even put the date that they married and then what their new name was. And, and he made friends with some of these uh, oh, he contributors did. as well. He, he sounds did. like a nice man. He really does. And I've just come to realise recently that because Murray himself was an autodidact, he left school at 14, he taught himself 25 languages, he he was industrious and worked so hard. And so he, in many ways, was a reflection of many of these other people. Who was the man from Idle? I've forgotten his name, but there was a, a contributor who comes from the, the town of Idle, who was, who was always happy to say, I'm an, oh, an Idle that man. Is, no, sorry, yes, that is, that is uh, Joseph Wright. So Joseph Wright was born into a very poor Yorkshire family. In fact, his mother put him to work in the mines as a donkey boy at the age of six. And he, at the age, so he worked as a donkey boy from six till 11. At the age of 11, he went and worked in a cotton mill. By the age of 15, he couldn't read or write, but he goes to a morning tea where someone is reading the newspaper out out loud, and he's captivated by the story that that he's hearing, and he wants to learn to read. So he teaches himself. Now that man, Joseph Wright, becomes ultimately the professor of comparative philology at the University of Oxford. It's astonishing, isn't it? It I mean, absolutely the, the is. Sheer determination and strength of mind. Absolutely, and he is, I think, typical of many of the outsiders. So I write about him in the chapter O for Outsiders because he was an outsider who then becomes an insider. But also in that chapter, I talk about someone who started out as an insider going to Harvard, this very wealthy American, but he ends up living as a hermit in Suffolk here in um, England. And so he goes from being an insider to becoming an outsider, and be and he becomes a superb uh, sub-editor of the dictionary, and he devotes every waking hour to the dictionary. Well, as you say, every every chapter has a, a letter. So we start off with uh, A is for archaeologist. You've got an archaeologist. Uh, B is for best contributor. Inevitably, I'm going to go for chapter 12. L is for lunatics, um, because um, that's... Uh, well, it, Almost every chapter has a wonderfully lurid story, uh, but Lunatics is fab. And of, of the, we talked about the big contributors, yeah. the, the top four contributors all spent time in lunatic asylums. They did, yes, which is remarkable. And the more I think about that, the more I realise that this was very repetitive work. They were probably, like me, neurodiverse and on the spectrum a bit. And so this kind of work really suited people with obsessive personalities. The um, I also want to talk inevitably about uh, about uh, the uh, well. There's a, a a place where you discuss how exhaustive it was. Uh, Murray wanted it to be an exhaustive uh, dictionary containing every word, and um, a man called Alexander John Ellis pointed out that it was not exhaustive. Uh, why was it not? It was not because it did not include slang and swear words and the coarse 
the, the course words. So Murray actually did end up including a lot of slang, but with respect to the C word and the F word, he decided he gathered all of the evidence for them, as I describe, in the book. And there's one particular man who sends in a lot of the sex words. Uh, oh, are we going to talk about Ashby? Yes. Oh, we have to talk about Ashby. I love him. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I afraid, love him this too. Is, this is a book lover's book. Your book is for well, people like me, isn't it? Um, <laughs> ev- on every chapter, there's there's something about. Oh, I want to know more about. Yeah, that. Well, tell me about Ashby. Ashby. Ashby had the world's largest collection of pornography, and so surprise, surprise, uh, Murray on more or less a monthly basis receives a bunch of sex words, which I'm sure must have made him. Um, blush at the time. Yes, because uh, he was a, a very proper man. He was. A, he was. A, yeah. He was a nonconformist. He was very religious. He didn't drink, and he got up at four a.m. and was devoted not only he to. He had religion, eleven children, so he, he wasn't had eleven um, children. He wasn't averse to. <laughs> that's true, and he was actually a really loving father, and that I hope comes through because I found two memoirs written by two of his sons and they they provide a wonderful snapshot of of what family life was like and what a wonderful sense sense of humor that James Murray had but, one yeah. of the joys of your book is that you keep going off piste and telling sorry us, we do. no 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 <laughs> is that you go off piste and tell us stories which strictly speaking are not concerned with this what happened to Ashby's collection of pornography oh that's fantastic okay so when he died, so Ashby had not only the world's largest collection of pornography, he also had the world's largest collection of Cervantes. And so when he died, he gave that collection to the British Museum. They really wanted the Cervantes, but they were, they did not want the pornography. So I went to the British Museum and I actually found the minutes of, of the meeting when they met and they discussed what they were going to do with all this por- pornography. And they decided to burn some of it and to put the rest of it in a locked cabinet. They burnt a collection. They did. The British Library burnt a collection of books. It's shocking. Well, yeah. And I mean, a lot of it was pamphlets. A lot of it was ephemera um, to do with erotica and pornography. But yes, that's what, what they did. And that locked up cabinet stayed locked up, I think, until the 60s. Then it was locked up again. Well, it's now still, you still have to, you can go and ask for some of the items in it, but it's still, um, it's locked, still locked away. Locked yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> you'd, you'd think by now if, with the internet and what you can find on the internet. Oh, for sure. I am told. Um, that, <laughs> but no, no, they still lock it up. We, before we leave this subject, we have to talk about James Dixon, who uh, was uh, the medical words man he was. for Murray. And he was fine with the C word. He, he was, was fine, fine with, with the, the C word. Well, with he, one of the C words. Ah, <laughs> you anticipate me. Yes, so tell me about... Uh... So he writes this letter to Murray, which, which I found, which was actually... Uh, folded up into a little small square, put into a small envelope marked private, and then that envelope was put into another larger envelope. Inside, With a word that he he was happy to say cunt, but he couldn't say... Condom. So he thought that this was the most... Uh, uh, I forget the wording, but he said something about the most lurid word or, or the most obscene word of all of them. Because it wasn't the word, was it? It was what people would do with it that, that were, really troubled him. Is it the case that he just thought if you put it in the dictionary, people would find it and go, oh, I didn't know there was such a thing. I will now go and fornicate freely. I think he must have thought it was. that. He, he was a real Puritan. <laughs> 
Yes, and he also came with this uh, came up with this folk etymology that it was from French, and he says this <laughs> this wonderful thing of like, well, of course, all obscene things come from France. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's an interesting thing, though. Uh, Murray's uh, bosses at the OED didn't want to have foreign words and mm. didn't want to have a lot of Americanisms and things. And Murray resisted it uh, manfully and insisted yeah. on having. Uh, I mean, th- and that slightly confuses me because it's the Oxford right. English Dictionary mm-hmm. now. We are very, all very happy with the word bungalow and pyjamas sure. and, and, uh, and other words. But there are a lot of foreign words that got into the dictionary that mm-hmm. never did really make it into English. Well, they did. So he, Murray, only put in a word if he said it, it was used in, in an English context. So as long as that foreign word had all other English words in the sentence around <laughs> it, then that was fine. And... I really admire him for doing that because it shows two things. One, that he was really strict to his scientific principles and he basically said that any word deserves to go in, which brings me back to the C word and the F word. The reason why he didn't put that in is because of the Obscenities Act and the fact that at this time in the 19th century there was another lexicographer called Stephen Farmer who had put a Canton slang dictionary out and was being sued. So Murray had a really good reason for not putting those those words in. But um, so but 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 to come back to that, uh, so the reason why Murray uh, does put in the the foreign words. I think shows us that he was true to the scientific method, but he was also very open to other varieties of English around the world. And he had a son living in South Africa. There are a lot of South South African words in. There are so many Australian words. There are words from all the different varieties of English, which were just um, emerging then. So that, that was a really radical act. And I think one that now we really admire, but at the time, Murray was definitely criticised, not just by his superiors, but also by people who wrote reviews of the dictionary. I found some incredible quotes where they were saying, what are these outlandish words doing in an, in an English dictionary? And they also criticised him for what they called decaying the language with these, with these words. At one point in the uh, in the book, you you say you were surprised how few famous people were contributors to the dictionary. Although I can't help thinking that they probably had more to do; they were too busy to contribute. Um, I did come across, and this this made me sit up and go, "Oh, how interesting!" Edward Bybridge was uh, uh, one of the contributors. That's right. And um, now you gave us a little potted history of him as well. Yeah. Again, going wonderfully off piece uh, to my large pleasure. Um, <laughs> he was the. He was the father of, of uh, motion photography. He was. He really pioneered motion motion pictures, and he famously set up all these cameras to observe whether when when a horse gallops, are all of its legs off the ground at one second in time. And, and listeners will have seen the pictures. We've, we the photographs are very very famous. Yeah, that's right. And so, uh, so I tell the story of Maya Bridge. Uh, and as you, I'm sure, know, before that happened, before he became, or as he was becoming a famous photographer in California, his wife had an affair and had what Mybridge thought was a child to, to that man. It actually ended up that the child was, was Mybridge's. But he goes and he murders that lover 
Um, you see, I did not know that until yeah. I read your book. So no, I, I, and but there are so many wonderful stories like that. Uh, chapter C is for Cannibal. Yes, that story is Sir John Richardson who took part in the famous and very um, uh, flawed and doomed um, expedition for the Northwest Passage. This was the Franklin ex- expedition. And Sir John Richardson was the surgeon on that expedition, which um, which took part, and um, sadly 11 of the 21 explorers died. And he says that he was tricked into eating two of his fellow travellers. Um, and I tell the story of that. And, you do indeed. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's marvellous and uh, quite eye-opening. And then, of mm. course, he retires and becomes one of the uh, important contributors. He really does. He he moves to the Lake District and he's a classic example. So a lot of families work on the dictionary to, together and I picture them around the table, around the gas lamp, reading books and writing out slips together. How long did this go on? How many uh, how many years did this Well, persist? the dictionary started in 1858 and, as I say, um, in the first 20 years there are several hundred people helping, one of whom is Richardson. And then by about 1912 it is slowing down. Um, so by the time that the dictionary is finally finished in 1928, in fact, what is really sad is when they celebrate the final, when there's a big final dinner to celebrate the publication in 1928, the prime minister is there and all the great and good are there, all the male great and good, because the women weren't allowed to join the dinner. They were allowed to sit up and watch it from a balcony in the Goldsmiths Hall. They had to bring sandwiches. They had to bring their their own food. They were skied, yes. <laughs> um, and what you found in, is that, in fact, there were very few, if any, of these dictionary people actually at that final dinner. So that's really why I wanted to write this book. I wanted to shine a light finally on these people and give them the uh, credit and the recognition that they deserve. Given the relatively haphazard method of, of collection, it's amazing it ended up as prestigious and as comprehensive as it did, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And I think it's thanks to these people. It's thanks to their brilliance, to their perseverance, to their obsession and their devotion. Did anybody ever make up words or quotations? I mean, I can imagine I'm sitting there in, say, in Boston, Massachusetts, well away. Nobody's ever going to check. I've got a book that... And I go, well, gazumflerp, and, <laughs> and uh, 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 maybe uh, sort of uh, an early American novel writes, uh, I took him down to the gazumflerp and made him... <laughs> well, that's a great question, and I'm sure that there might have been one or two people who tried to do that, but you see, the actual system was so smart because they needed more than just one quotation to get a word into the dictionary. So, And that's why when they received the slips, they would sort them um, alphabetically and then chronologically. And then when they would come to editing a word, they, they would gather all of the slips that they had for that word. And they definitely needed more than just one quotation. Sometimes a word did get in when it was just one quotation. And I guess that they must have just taken that. Well, they often did check quotes. And so when I, I know that certainly it's, it's the case now because people still do send in slips and send in words to the dictionary now, but everything is checked and double checked. Were, were words missed then? Because it wasn't a scientific 
I mean, yeah. now, nowadays you could do it, as I say, with a database. Yes, yeah, so but words, were, words were missed, but it's really remarkable how many weren't missed. Some were therefore, some were all also deliberately excluded, like those, like the C word and the F word, and there was a good reason for that. But also there was the missing out, and we've talked about him, that James Dixon, who was the retired surgeon and helped the dictionary on medical terms, when Murray came to put in the word appendicitis and g- gathered all, all of these slips to put the word in, the um, James Dixon said, no, that is just another itis word. And if you start going down that route, you'll you'll never stop. So Murray didn't put in the word. Appendicitis. And in in, uh, 1902, with the coronation of Edward VII, you wouldn't believe it, but that coronation was delayed because the king got appendicitis. So suddenly everyone was talking about the word, but no one could find it in the dictionary. And Murray was really regretting the fact that he hadn't hadn't put it in. Humiliated by Mm. that, wasn't he? I'm going to ask you for one more because we're running out of time. Um, I fell in love with, as I suppose you must have done as well, with Christopher Collier, uh, a man from Brisbane. Yes. And uh, because of him, there's a a bias towards quotations from the uh, paper called the Brisbane Courier Mail. That's right. And and you you knew him, you met him. Yes. So so when, when I first started working on the dictionary 35 years ago, it was my job to open the mail. And every month, this bundle of slips would would come in eccentrically wrapped in cornflake packets for some reason with bits of dog hair stuck in it and bits of cereal. Lovely. And and I would open these slips and they all came from one man in Brisbane, Australia, from a single source, from the local paper. And I happened to be from Brisbane, Australia. So this, I took a particular interest in Mr. Chris Collier. So as I mentioned, even though there are 75 people working on the OED today, they still do rely on contributions from the public. So Mr. Collier sent in so many slips that now, and I did this analysis, and there are more slips from the Brisbane Courier Mail than they are from T.S. Eliot or from Virginia Woolf. And when I met him, I said, Mr. Collier, what do you say about um, if the dictionary got you a ticket and we flew you to Oxford to show you the workings of the dictionary and to meet the editors in uh, person, would you be open to that? And and he thought for a second and he said, oh, but I couldn't possibly. Just imagine all the courier mails waiting for me when I got home. So that just shows me. I mean, these people are devoted and obsessed, but inc- incredibly kind. And he was, uh, again, very similar to James Murray. He had left school at 14. And he said to me that he read about the dictionary, apparently in the 1970s, in the Courier Mail, and he thought to himself, just imagine if I could get one word into the dictionary, and he sent in 100,000 slips. I notice you leave out him walking around naked before dawn to collect everybody else's papers. Tim, I was trying to keep that as, as a little... Easter egg for the reader. <laughs> but yes, oh, but the secret's so out. Okay, there, good. There are a hundred stories <laughs> as, as wonderful as that in the book. It's a book for people like us who just love books and, and yeah. dictionaries. Um, so, well, I think you can tell I've really enjoyed it. Sarah, thank you very much. It's such a pleasure. Thank you, Tim. The book is then The Dictionary People by Sarah Ogilvie published by Chateau and Windus at £22. If you enjoyed this interview, uh, subscribe now to, uh, to be notified of upcoming episodes. And in October, 
we will be live on stage with Philip Norman to discuss his brilliant new biography of George Harrison. We'd love to see you, so please join us at 21 Soho on the 24th of October. There is a link to tickets on the homepage of the website. Please do click subscribe now to hear all our interviews and follow us on Facebook to be kept in the loop. That was the Books Podcast presented by Tim Haig. Email Tim on tim at bookspodcast.com, Twitter at bookspodcast, and Facebook at bookspodcast Tim.